0: Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha, And I'm Glenn McDorman. Today, we are going to be talking
1: about The Brotherhood of Mutilation by Brian Evanson. This was published in 2003. It is a novella, quite a long one, actually. It's 70 pages long. So that means that we're going to do two episodes on this. This episode is going
0: to be the recap. This episode was commissioned to us by a very generous uh, supporter of the podcast network. We are always really grateful to get these commissioned episodes. I think we're always especially grateful to revisit writers that we've read and enjoyed like Brian Evanson. So this will be a fun story for us to discuss, I think, though. Uh, I think your taste might vary on whether or not you enjoyed reading it based on how you approach the, the, the content of the story itself. Yeah, this is only the second Brian
1: Evanson that we've done, and we really liked dust. I mean, I, I liked isn't even the strongest verb that we should use there. I mean, I think we just adored dust, and we've been wanting to do more Brian Evanson. So I'm, like you, Brandon, extremely grateful to our listener who has commissioned this story, given us an opportunity to do more Brian Evanson. But I think that what you're alluding to there, Brandon, is that
0: uh, this story has a lot of body horror in it, which may not be everyone's thing. Totally, and we are going to when we get to the discussion, which i 'm really excited for, approach this story as a horror story. What kind of horror is going on here, and approach it I think in ways that are uh maybe unexpected, I hope to some to some audience members and to some readers of this story. This story also feels like a detective story it 's got a lot of great detective tough guy elements to it, hard boiled crime fiction. In other words, there's a lot going on here, and we shouldn't delay any further getting right to the recap. Well, this story begins with just a really awesome hook. So I am going to
1: read the first sentence into the microphone. It was only later that he realized the reason they had called him. But by then, it was too late for the information to do him any good. And so you know, right away, we know that something bad is going to happen. And essentially we're just getting a bit of text on the screen that says, you know, like one week earlier or something like that. And I think Evanson does a brilliant job of of mixing the present of the story with the backstory that we require here in order to understand what's going on. I mean, what he does is just seamless, really. But I am going to break that seam. I'm going to break it down and and do the present of the story and the backstory discreetly as sort of separate chunks. And I'll start with the backstory. Our main character is an American man named Klein, probably in his 30s, might be in his 40s. He has recently been the victim of an infiltration. And uh, that's the word in the text, but it's not entirely clear what that means at this point. But at any rate, Klein found himself facing a man with a cleaver. And this man with a cleaver chopped off the lower half of Klein's right arm. In turn, Klein hastily used his belt as a tourniquet, cauterized the wound on a nearby hot plate, and then shot the infiltrator through the eye with a pistol. And right now, we don't know much about Klein, so we don't really understand what his life was like before this moment, that we will get some of that later later. But because of this incident, Klein has received a fairly comfortable pension so that he doesn't need to work. And also, this person who chopped off his arm, whom he then in turn shot, had a briefcase with several hundred thousand dollars in it, and Klein kept that for himself. Uh, He moved that out of the crime scene somehow. And so in the present of the story, Klein is not working, but he also is struggling to deal with what happened to him and, and to deal with the loss of a limb. And so that's the backstory. And probably that's only a few months ago, uh, maybe even only a few weeks ago. And so the question then is, what is happening in the present, right? What is this story going to be about? Klein begins receiving some phone calls from two men who do not identify themselves, and they are impressed by what they read in the newspaper about this Incident, the the man with the cleaver, but they also have some information about all of this that was not in the newspapers, which of course is very creepy. And what they want is for Klein to get on a plane and come to them, and they've already arranged for his ticket, which is waiting for him at the airport. And you see, what's happening here is they need his help, though they won't say what they need his help with. And Klein refuses because obviously all of this is creepy. It's the the sort of thing that uh, would definitely have me just moving immediately, right? I mean, this is all still with a landline phone here, you know, just just keep that thing off the hook. Uh, And in fact, Klein refuses twice, and then he wakes up to find these guys sitting in his bedroom. And it turns out that they also are missing body parts. Uh, Both of them are uh, missing a hand, just like Klein, and one of them is also missing his upper lip and they repeat their request that he come with them and when he refuses again one of them says that they're not actually asking they're they're telling and that is where the chapter breaks here though i have i've definitely left out all of the the funny parts
0: yeah I, th- there's a real through line of dark comedy in this novella which was expanded then into the novel called Last Days. That's where we uh, read this. The first half of Last Days is the novella, uh, The Brotherhood of Mutilation. But yeah, what you've picked up on here, Glenn, is this classic two-man act that Lisp and Low Voice, as Klein initially calls these two men, uh, perform on the phone. In his introduction to Last Days, Peter Straub likens this conversation, these two guys, he likens them to like an... Abbott and Costello bit. And the dialogue is quick, right? It's really snappy. And these two goons talk as if they've rehearsed what they're going to say, and they play off each other. And Klein, of course, then plays the part of the straight man. Uh, And yeah, Glenn, in more ways than one, I think you're right to point out that this novella also starts with a great hook, right? Klein has lost his hand, and he's... Struggling to use a hook, uh, and he's really just struggling in general, as you, as you've pointed out, but that's a real emphasis in this first chapter. Yeah. These, these two
1: goons are are awesome. I mean, and they are really just classic right out of hard-boiled films where there's the, you know, one is the muscle. I mean, they're both the muscle, right? But one is really the muscle and the other one is kind of the, the brains or at least the mouth, right? And that's definitely what we've got here. And it is funny. I mean, there's a real kind of slapstick humor to this that I certainly was not expecting uh, based on the title of this piece and, and definitely not based on the first few pages where we're getting all of this, this backstory that is definitely you know, traumatic and, and also traumatizing to me, body horror. And then all of a sudden we've got this like, who's on first, Abbott and Costello bit. Uh, crashing into this even though it's uh, you know behind that act is uh the potential for serious business violence as we uh we of course will see as we continue.
0: Yeah, I I have to say uh, you know in response to your thinking that this is awesome, I almost bounced off this first chapter on a personal taste level uh the gentleman goon, you know, or the the two gentleman goons whose core features are you know, maintaining civility in the face of taboo and violent actions. It's really one of my least favorite tropes in all of literature. Uh, Neil Gaiman uses this, uh, this similar trope and similar characters in his novel Neverwhere. Uh, but th- this trope has existed for ages. You know, as you point out, it goes, you know, it's part of the hard boiled uh, sort of stable of characters. So, yeah, as I said right off the bat, I was a little worried that I'd have to deal with these genteel goons for the rest of the novella in their current form, that we, as we meet them in chapter one. But that's not the case. And I actually really love what Evanson does with these characters. They become awesome characters and two of my favorite characters in the story. But before we move on, I I have to talk about this epigram for a minute. Uh, This is what it is. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. These are words that are spoken by Christ, as reported in the book of Matthew. It's part of Christ's Sermon on the Mount. Evanson, though, in this epigram, elides some of the text here, uh, and that text explains the reason why Christ is telling people to gouge out their eyes and cut off their hands. It's because, as Christ says, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So, even as we get to the end of this chapter, you know, where we see that one of the goons has a torn lip, a mutilated lip, and Klein has had his hand cut off, and this other character clearly has had some amputations. And given that the title of the novella is The Brotherhood of Mutilation, I already suspect that we're dealing with some sort of order that got really into cutting off offending body parts but maybe is ignoring the rest of the context of the sermon on the mount. Right, I mean the
1: title of the the story is brotherhood and uh, you know mutilation, right? So uh, we've we've seen some mutilation already. We're definitely going to have to have something with the brotherhood which is doesn't have to be a religious term but is I think most of the times that I've ever encountered it.
0: Yeah, otherwise you get fraternal order which uh, you know, those might also be religious organizations. It's unclear
1: yeah. I think usually at least started as such at any rate. But. <laughs> well, I'll move us on here. So chapter two picks up right where chapter one ended. The two goons force Klein out of his home and into their car and they begin driving. And here is where we, we learn their names. They're Ramsey and Goose. Uh, Ramsey is the senior partner here. And it turns out that he has a lot of amputations, both his hands, some toes, and then of course the lip as well. Goose, however, is new to this and only has the one hand missing. So they drive and they drive, and along the way, there is some banter, and we also learn some things. Ramsey and Goose are part of some kind of organization that is into amputation as a kind of status. If you're a member of this organization, you get labeled by how many amputations you have, right? It's, uh, are you an eight or just a two? But you can also get some some credibility if you do things like forego anesthesia or cauterize your own amputation. But that is all we learn about this organization right now, though Ramsey and Goose also have thoughts about the accuracy and the fairness of the current system of merit that they're using. Before this chapter ends, though, we do also get a hint, at least, of what it is that they want with Klein. A crime has been committed, and they want Klein to investigate it. And the reason is that Klein has some experience with investigations, or not really investigation, but infiltration. That's what he does. That's what he used to do for a living. And we also learned that there was some dispute about
0: whether or not Klein should even be allowed on this case. Yeah, I get, I get the sense here, you know, when we see the infiltration business come up again, that Klein's job was, you know, police-related somehow, and... Klein was really worn down by it, and it finally got the best of him in more ways than one. You know, in, in fact, until you get to this point where Klein is being asked to investigate a crime, you might think, as I thought, that he was just going to be killed or something by some associates of the gentleman with the cleaver. And I think that insinuation is really purposeful. This this recurring image of the gentleman, the way. Uh, Cleavers will show up in the story more, but just the fact that they call him the gentleman with the cleaver and these two men are acting like, you know, gentlemen goons. I think Evanson is really cleverly trying to get us to feel tension about what these guys want with Klein until it's revealed to us. So I am relieved then that we're getting a detective story of some kind uh, instead of uh, just some kind of tough guy pulp adventure, though there's some of that here too in the novel. But there is some real
1: discomfort as we have no idea what's going on. Klein has no idea what's going on. And it's actually pretty clear, I think, right away that these goons don't really know what's going on either. And that's maybe just a little too postmodern for, for my comfort zone <laughs> there. Right? It's like, I want someone to be reliable in this in this story. And and eventually someone is going to be, but it's not going to be for, for quite
0: a while. Right. And reliability is is a real... Part of the suspense of this story is like who can we even trust to to tell us what's happening, what the story is even about. Uh, You know, on on another vein here, I had to look up when the story was first published, which you know, of course, it was written before it was published because at this point, I was really reminded of the opening of season two of Twenty Four, where like Jack Bauer was calling for a hacksaw in order to take off a guy's head for some reason. I don't know. Uh, there's more dismemberment in that show that's important to the plot resolution of season three of 24. Uh, I don't think these two stories influenced one another. But it really struck me uh, that there must have been something in the water or in the cultural zeitgeist uh, where amputations were more popular than they should have been uh, to in order to resolve detective stories and infiltration stories and Police stories in the early 2000s. Uh, But it wasn't just the lopping off of limbs that reminded me, like, I I guess, of a few seasons of 24. Klein, at the opening of this novel, something we didn't really emphasize yet, has some real depressed Jack Bauer energy to him. So much so that, like, Klein's on We may have resulted in the in his own death, if Goose and Ramsey hadn't interfered with their offer. And I think this is something that's really important to keep in mind as we continue to work our way through the novella. Klein is not handling his amputation and retirement, his whole situation well at all. Um, he's really on the edge of starving to death. He doesn't want to leave his house. So I think the book does does have a really a perfect setup, which we kind of Get what the full setup is here in this chapter. It's entirely fault- faultless. I mean, it is this guy is caught between a rock and a hard place. He has a call to action and his choice is either and he doesn't even respond to it. He has to be forced into it. And otherwise he's dying. And and then the strangeness of the brotherhood is enough to really keep the pages turning. I, I think this is the fastest I've ever read 70 pages for the show. Oh yeah, this story just zips
1: along. A a lot of it is dialogue. A lot of it is this comedic act with the the gentleman goons. And so that all moves very quickly. All of the dialogue is just Breezy to read, even when it's serious, and yeah, this is just a, I think, a masterpiece of storytelling. I mean, let let alone whatever we might think about the story itself, this is a masterpiece of of narrative.
0: I was blown away by it. Yeah, I I was too. Especially when I kind of sat down and and got a little distance from the story. I I want to say one more thing here about the dialogue, and really not just the style of dialogue, but the content here. Um, In that little debate between Goose and Ramsey, where they're having a conversation about the best way to evaluate one's position in the brotherhood's hierarchy. This is a little bit of, you know, big end of the egg versus little end of the egg drama here. And this is not the last time that we'll see Swifty and satire at play in the novella. In fact, that's one way I think we can categorize this story, uh, which we will be doing in in our discussion. And I'll point some more of it out as we go along. All right. well, let's let's get into the next scene here. i We've really kind of had
1: the 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 teaser and the the hook of the story, But now we're going to get into the the setting where the story is actually going to take place. And uh, when the car arrives here, it it is dark. and and really where they have arrived, as far as Klein can tell, is just some kind of a gate. There's a guard there who identifies Ramsey and Goose, but then also needs to know who Klein is and what his bona fides are. Uh, this definitely involves showing Klein's amputation to the guard. And they're in some kind of compound now. There are several buildings, there's lots of trees. The goons take Klein to a small two story building and they direct him to a room that will be his now. This is where he's going to stay while he's here doing this investigation. And it's a pretty terrible room. I mean, it's basically a dorm room from the 1970s that hasn't been cleaned or maintained in (laughs) like 30 years. Uh, There's even a cabinet with a stack of softcore porn calendars that features amputated models with the label Miss Less is More. So this is not a place that uh, I think I would like to spend a night, let alone several nights, but this is where Klein finds himself. And The next morning, Ramsay and Goose wake Klein up with a change of clothes. Uh, This is a pair of gray slacks and a white shirt, as well as a red clip-on tie, which it turns out is a a uniform of sorts for everyone here. They then take Klein to see Borcher, who is uh, a 12, which is to say he has 12 amputations, and he is the second in command around here Before they get to Borscher, though, they they have to go through some guards. Uh, There's one at the entrance to the building and then another at the entrance to Borscher's room. And we learn that the guards all have an eye amputated. And there's a rumor as well that they're all castrated, though that's something they never talk about and we, the readers, are not going to have verified for us. But this introduces us to the idea that within this organization of amputees, and, and we still don't know what this place is and what that organization is, but within this organization there are groups or, or cliques or maybe even factions, which is really compelling world building, I think. But all right, let's meet Borcher. Now he and Klein have a private meeting in a room where the only chair is real wheelchair, and. Borscher wants to know about Klein's amputation. Uh, He muses that there is some cultural change brewing here, right? That uh, self-cauterization will become a new trend now that Klein is here. And Borchier introduces the idea that this organization is some kind of religion and that there is a danger of a schism right now within this religion. He also tells Klein that uh, Klein can't leave though he has, he has asked to. Uh, but Klein has to stay here and he has to do the investigation. And if he doesn't, Borcher will have to kill him. So Klein goes along, at least for now, and so Borcher fills him in on the case. It's murder. The leader of this brotherhood has been murdered. His name is Aline, and he was a real visionary. Everything that could be cut off had been. But now he's been murdered, and also his heart has been stolen. Obviously, Borcher wants to know who did it, though he does also want the heart back. But there are some catches here. Klein can't see the body, and he also cannot just go around interviewing people. He'll, he'll have to arrange interviews through Bourcher. But Borchere is going to at least let him see the crime scene, which is where we're going to go in the next chapter. But before we get there, before Klein leaves the room, Borchere wants Klein's help with something else. That something else is an amputation. So Klein cuts off the tip of one of Borcher's fingers with a cleaver and then watches while Borcher cauterizes the wound himself. And this really feels like it's supposed to be something of an initiation.
0: I'm going to talk about this initiation business in just a a second, but I want to return to earlier in the chapter uh, when Klein is sleeping the first night in the lodge, he has this dream that first night in, in, the, in the lodging house. You know. And by, and by the way, I think we really have to praise mm-hmm. Evanson here for giving us such a strong sense of the setting without ever feeling like the pace of the story slows for description. I, I actually don't even remember reading a description of the place. But Glenn, you've described it perfectly, and it's the exact same sense that I had. So I don't actually know how Evanson did, th- did this at all. But anyway, Klein has a dream where he's the gentleman with the cleaver, bringing the cleaver down on his own arm, then going um, to the hot plate to do the cauterization, and then shooting the gentleman with the cleaver who was also himself. And there's this symmetry between that dream and this moment at the end of the chapter with Borschere that gives one the sense that Klein is not only having nightmares, but is maybe living out a nightmare. And I think the images in this dream will continue to resonate throughout the novel, especially with these scenes with Borscher. But part of what makes this story so effective, I think, is putting this dream here really early on in the page count, early on in the action of the story, and then reinforcing it, reinforcing the imagery with this initiation amputation, as you put it, Glenn, and then letting the images just hang over the story.
1: Right, and this is definitely a way. I mean, just in terms of writing craft, right? This is definitely a way for Evanson to continue to have the the body horror be present. In our reading of the story, even when there is no body horror in the, you know, the actual visceral physical experience of Klein at this moment, because, you know, as as stories usually work, we're building up to more and more of that, but we always are feeling that on the page, and and like you said, with the description or the lack of description, this is just a brilliant move on Evanson's part. There's just he's able to evoke a sense of what this world is like with very sparse. Uh, amount of words, and it's it's fantastic.
0: Yeah, even the indication that Klein is getting initiated into this brotherhood, there's not just this act where he's forced almost to amputate the first joint of a finger of Barcher. He's also dressed in the garb of the Brotherhood. Uh, they've also left their special pornography <laughs> behind for him. <laughs> um, and so we, we have the sense that they're trying to make him to to force him to feel as though he's bought into this lifestyle, to this world, uh, even though he's still very much on the outside of it. This pornography bit, um, it's really funny, I guess, but I think it has an important part to play in the story. I'm going to wait until we get a little bit later on where we see a little more of this uh, to talk about what's going on here. I think it plays into one of the approaches we can take in reading this story. This chapter is also where we get the setup for the cases, as you you know, recapped Glenn and some of the motivation behind having Klein in particular come in. Borchere, at least, is a little concerned about Klein's potential to cause a schism. So, something I think we should keep in mind as we read this story is the way that Evanson is using this preposterous premise for a spiritual practice to explore power and schisms within a ritualistic religious system. Borcher's decision then to self-cauterize after Klein performs the amputation of the finger joint. It seems like Borcher is making some kind of concession to a group that has a potential to remove themselves from the core corpus of practitioners and create a side group. So all of this is at play, and it's so beautifully woven in here that um, unless you read a very specific... Uh, Jonathan Swift poem in English lit class. You might miss some of the satire that's taking place here, I think.
1: <laughs> all right, well, I'm looking forward to you making that presentation to me in the discussion. And of course, all I want to talk about or think about in terms of uh, what's going on here with all this schismatic stuff is, of course, late antique Christianity. So uh, those are the two things that we can bring to this <laughs> this text together in the discussion episode. Well, we're in chapter four now, and Klein has gone back to his room to think about what is going on and what he's going to do. Goose brings him some lunch and they have a bit of a chat. Klein is wondering the same thing that all of us are wondering. How does someone get involved in this cult to begin with? But Goose won't answer that question. Uh, He says that Ramsey got him into it, but beyond that, it's sacred and he won't talk about it with an outsider. We get a repetition of this at dinner, but this time it's with Ramsey. There's some some more going on in this conversation as well, with Ramsey being really rather antagonistic and trying to get Klein to Tell him about the investigation, but really, Ramsey has come to take Klein to the scene of the crime. Ramsey actually has to wait outside the building, and then a guard takes Klein up to Aline's room. Well, maybe it's Aline's room. At any rate, we we don't know because the guard won't say, right? Klein actually tries to get this verified by somebody else and and cannot. And the guard also is confused when Klein asks him about the murder. Uh, The guard doesn't know that there has been a murder, essentially. The room itself is very similar to Borscher's, except that there's blood all over the floor and there's a a white outline of a body. Also, there's blood splatter on the walls. But the whole thing doesn't really make any sense to Klein. The blood splatter is too high on the walls and also the blood is too fresh because these dudes started calling him at least three weeks ago. So the blood should be totally dried. And in fact, it should smell terrible in here, there also ought to be flies in here too. And there's none of that. So now Klein goes and confronts Borchere about this. And Borchere admits that this is not really the crime scene. It's a reconstruction of the crime scene. And Klein doesn't know how he's going to do anything with that and repeats his desire to interview people. But Borchere dismisses him by saying that he's sure something can be arranged, which is a a great use of passive voice there. And so we're left wondering something that Klein had been thinking about earlier in the day, which is, does Borcher actually want him to solve the crime or is something else going on here?
0: Yeah. uh, What is going on here? (laughs) We, we don't, really don't know. Evanson has masterfully drawn us deeper into the mystery of the occult while we're getting evasions that demand an answer from Borcher about the crime. I mean, just think about the absurdity of having to investigate a reconstructed crime scene. There was a show on... Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe it'll get a second season. I watched it on Hulu. I It might have aired on Fox. It was called Crime Scene Kitchen. Where the <laughs> contestants had to bake a dessert based on, you know, the quote unquote evidence left behind in the kitchen, which was also a crime scene and and, and that crime scene then was designed to the degree that the contestants you know, we're supposed to get specific information from it and, and be able to reconstruct. Look, I don't know. This is TV now. I, I don't know if it is, Brandon. I I have not heard of the show. I just Googled <laughs> it and came back with zero search results. I think that
1: something else might be No, it was hosted here. by
0: Joel McHale. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure it was real. I didn't just dream it up. <laughs> but of course, you know, I'm making this point, this like joke about this show, because the only thing an investigator can think if they're in a reconstructed crime scene is that it's totally staged for them to see only certain types of evidence. That evidence is meant to only point in one direction. You know, photographs would be better than a recreation. So, yeah, right. What? Why all this trouble? What is it leading to? And and the other question is, is why if this wasn't about cutting off body parts and grisly murder and heart theft, would this story just be really funny? It has this really. Jagged philosophical humor to it, and and I just I think Evanston's just at the top of his game here. I mean, this is really funny if it wasn't so uh, dis- distasteful. I don't know, is that the right word? Yeah, I mean, it is distasteful for
1: sure, and it, it, it is Kafka esque, right? I mean, you're just abducted, you're you're dropped down into this organization that is full of of secrecy and just is impenetrable, but you're trapped. There's no escape. You can't get out of here. You are essentially imprisoned in some way and just can't even make sense of what the prison is. I mean, it's it's terrible. It you know somehow captures all of the negative experience of the institutionalization and bureaucratization of our lives that comes with industrialization and high modernity. Something that Kafka really brilliantly tapped into, but then puts it in this utterly absurd setting. You know, this type of setting that can't possibly really exist in the real world. And so, I, I think actually there's
0: a real sense in which this kind of feels like the film Brazil to me. That's an excellent analog to make here. I, I want to point out also the way that Evanson is, is playing with religion here, because we've brought it up a few times, and I think it's going to play uh, a big role in our conversation, uh, our discussion as we finish it. at. So there are some rules that we get throughout the dialogue in this chapter. No one's allowed to photograph the prophets of this religion. We uh, have a conversation about the way people are called to be in the brotherhood. They feel like it's a vocation. They know when it's time to remove a limb. Um, We have the appeal uh, of a natural religion, or Borscher talks about how self-cauterization appeals to a person's sense of natural religion. And that's where one's encounters with something like raw nature show the person God in a way that layers of reason and ritual and so forth cannot demonstrate God to them. And this is also somehow Klein's threat to the brotherhood. So we also get this sense that Klein's experience has threatened the unity of the brotherhood. Then there's this exchange between Klein and Borscher. Klein says, uh, I can't get anywhere without real evidence. And Borscher says, I have perfect faith in you, So, Edmondson is just really weaving in a lot of these ideas about faith, about belief, about empiricism, uh, about encounters with the world into these short, staccato crime fiction sentences. And it's really something else. I'm really very interested in the in In this religion, just
1: in general, but how it got started as well. and I, I thought that Bourcher here was using this this idea of natural religion to really emphasize that this is a religion that doesn't have a scripture and also that doesn't proselytize, which of course, would you know that is then the real question of how do we get members? You know, Goose does say that Ramsey had something to do with it, but the idea is that there is just a a natural impulse that some people have to, mutilate their bodies in this way to amputate themselves for some kind of religious or spiritual purpose to feel something of religiosity or spirituality here uh, it's it's interesting to me I mean I really the historian in me right really wants to like take this story as the only primary source that we have about this obscure religion and to really really try to figure out how this religion works you know it's its tenets its practices and so on uh, we don't Really have a ton of information about it, but I just thought this this religion is just super interesting.
0: Yeah, it it is super interesting, and that that's part of the fascination for me that they have like special uh, pornography because like why an open vice in a spiritual practice? Like, there's so many questions that the world that these guys live in, this brotherhood lives in, evoke uh, for somebody who thinks a religion is something that often keeps one away from various vices, but this doesn't seem to have that. And it's not clear what their God wants from them. And so it's super fascinating. And we'll see if we can get any answers when we get to our discussion episode.
1: All right. Well, a few days have passed now and Ramsey shows up at Klein's room again, and this time he's got a tape recorder the tape recorder is for the interviews. And and Klein, as as we would, of course, uh, assumes that it's so that he can record his conversations with witnesses. But it isn't. That's not what is happening here at all. What is going on here is that Borscher wants Klein to record the questions, and then Borscher will relay those questions to the witnesses, because these witnesses are all too high up in this organization, uh, which is to say they all have too many amputations, to see a mere one, right? Someone with only one amputation, such as Klein. Now, this is absurd, right? But Klein doesn't have much choice, and so he records some questions, But there is another thing going on here. Uh, In fact, it's really what the bulk of this chapter is about, and that is a party. It's Goose's party, his three party, which is to say that he's gathered his friends around him so that they can be there when he has two fingers amputated and becomes a three. Klein doesn't know that that's what type of party this is when he shows up, of course, and when he finds out what the party is really for, he wants to leave, right? He doesn't believe in any of this, and he doesn't want to condone it. But Ramsey talks him out of leaving. Uh, It's fine if Klein doesn't have the call yet. It's fine, even if he doesn't believe. But Goose does believe, and Klein should respect Goose's wishes and just not be rude. After witnessing the amputation, Klein gets pretty drunk, uh, drunk enough to run outside to vomit. But after that, he goes with some of the others to a nearby strip club. Uh, The strip club is still inside the cult's compound, to be clear. The strip club features women with amputations, and the stripping aspect is less about taking off clothing, though there is some of that, but really it's more about taking off
0: prosthetic limbs. Yeah, I've got a couple things to say about this chapter here. I'll get to this strip club last. Uh, first of all, Evanson way downplays, I think, bodily trauma here and how it works. But I just know that if I were in Klein's position or Goose's or anywhere near this Fraternal order, I'd die from shock long before I would have died from any other, you know, wound or amputation or anything like that. That's just me. And maybe also, if I were Goose, uh, be a little sensitive to the fact that Klein's hand had just come off in a pretty brutal way uh, that ended with a killing in self defense. And nobody in this order is really understanding or empathetic to Klein's own trauma. But that's because this group has to believe in order for Klein to do his job or to be in the compound at all. They have to believe that Klein actually willed his hand to be removed. And that deep down, he's just a believer like them who doesn't know that he believes yet. And this is an attitude that some proselytizers have about their... I don't know. I shouldn't say the word mark. About their... interlopers, (laughs) inter-conversational partners. But Klein, at this point in the story, remember, is stuck with the choice of either wasting away at home or going through with this charade, because if he doesn't stick it out with this investigation, he'll be killed. And so I guess Klein would rather work on behalf of some crazy version of justice here rather than die from starvation or be killed retreating from what little purpose he's been able, he's been offered from life and you know at this point though he's got no idea whether even a crime has been committed so he's maybe in one of the worst philosophical positions or existential positions I've ever seen a pulp detective be put in this is not a great situation to find
1: oneself in. I, I'm going to tr- I'm, I'm turn this down. Someone asks me if I want to do this for the weekend. The answer is definitely no. But <laughs> I think something we're going to have to talk about at the end of the story or when we do the discussion episode is whether or not Klein's better off at the end, or at least in the middle, than he was at, at home at the the beginning of the story. I think that's an, an interesting question
0: here uh, about, uh, I don't know, finding yourself between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, it really is a fascinating question. The next thing I need to talk about here is the strip club. The horrifying image of Klein passing out before the women can remove her prosthetic face is now living in my head, uh, right next to dipping cold hot dogs into mayonnaise and eating uh, them. Uh, and why, why Why? did you say it? It's something I'm stuck with. These two images now live <laughs> right next to each other with two of the most horrifying things I've read for this show. But what I'm mostly trying to deal with here is the fact that Evanson is pretty committed to telling us about how this brotherhood is really into women taking off their prosthetics that hide their amputations. There's a level here that we could interrogate that deals with fetish fetishization, you know, religious or spiritual hypocrisy, what this brotherhood is really about, you know, what kind of system of values this brotherhood really has. But at the end of the day, what I think Evanson is doing here is, as I've hinted at before, really leaning into Swifty and satire by even referencing Jonathan Swift at this point in a poem that Jonathan Swift completed in 1731 called A Beautiful Young Nymph Going to Bed. And this poem is all about a woman whose superficial beauty is the result of prosthesis and prosthetics such as these. Uh, she is more of a hub for prosthetics than she is having all of her limbs and skin attached. Uh, and so the poem is about her getting ready for bed and removing her limbs and taking off her uh, makeup and revealing all of her sores and all of this stuff. So I don't think that this stuff here with the fetishization of these women is merely for shock, though in our discussion episode, we'll have to discuss how well we think this uh, stuff here aids Evanson in achieving his storytelling goals. Presumably, the women at the strip club are also the women in the
1: calendars. And this to me then just raises questions about uh, what this organization is, because up to this point, it's been entirely, man, this is actually something Klein uh, finally kind of notices himself and thinks about at the party. And then we have this strip club. And so then what this has the feeling of to me is that these are sibling religious organizations, a sibling monastic organizations, right? There's monks, there's a house of monks, and then there's a house of nuns next door. The nuns are making the softcore porn calendars and are the strippers at the strip club. And it's not clear at all what the monks are are actually up to, but everybody is amputating. This is a very, very strange rendition of medieval Christianity here. And, uh, I think it's very cool, but it is also deeply unsettling. Yeah, I, like I said, I mean, this is, this is satire, right? It's got to be. All right, well, now it is the morning after the party. Uh, Klein <laughs> feels pretty miserable, but what matters for the story is that he finds that the tape recorder has been returned to him. He listens to it, and on it are the questions that he asks, and then following that are people answering the questions, or, you know, maybe... Maybe that's not what this is, because the answers have all been edited. There's just loads of dead air, there's deleted words and, and other things like that. And none of the answers mention Aline by name or use the words murder or death or body. And so it's not even clear that the witnesses are answering the questions that Klein recorded, which is not helpful. But Klein wants to see borsher again and Ramsey reports that Borcher will see Klein in three days. But that wait is just unacceptable to Klein, who instead storms over to the house where Borcher's room is. The guard won't let Klein through the gate, so Klein punches him out, then does the same thing with the guard at the building door. But he doesn't get much farther than that before the guards recover, and they beat him up pretty badly. When Klein regains consciousness, Borchere is there. Borchier encourages Klein to just accept the tape for what it purports to be, but Klein won't. And so Borcher says that he'll arrange for some in-person interviews tomorrow. And then he advises Klein to be careful now that he has a history of violence in the compound. Later that night, Goose shows up at Klein's room with a bottle of scotch, uh, which is compliments of Borcher. But the thing is, it isn't only scotch. And so Klein wakes up later to discover that three of his toes have been amputated against his will. And that's
0: the end of chapter six, uh, a clear escalation in the narrative. Right. Yeah. In this this chapter, we see Klein just getting real tired of getting jerked around. So he's got to bust down some doors and put on his tough guy pants and start getting the job done on his terms. But He's in maybe the worst place a person could be. I think we've been saying that a lot. You know, I don't know why he drinks the booze from share. It's clear that Klein sees it as a peace offering. But I guess Klein never learned not to drink from a bottle you didn't open when everyone is a stranger at the party. And Goose, this conversation between Goose and Klein, that's just amazing. You know, Goose clearly thinks when he brings the bottle of scotch over that Klein has heard the call and has agreed to whatever is about to happen. And Evanston's dialogue, his writing of this dialogue conveys so much. He gives us confusion on Klein's part, but clarity on Goose's part. It's so good. But uh, this chapter just ends at a place where we have to know what's going to happen next. But I will say this, what happens to Klein has been really cleverly foreshadowed by Evanson. Well, yeah, let's go get a few steps closer to that ending. So chapter seven opens with
1: Klein returning to confront Borscher. And Borscher just says, you asked me to make arrangements for interviews. So I did. I took the fewest toes possible. And now you can talk to tens. And Klein repeats his request to leave. And now Borcher says that he'll be able to leave when all this is done. So Klein gets to work. He goes to interview a man named Andreessen. And this is something of a, a who's on first routine, again, because Andreessen doesn't know anything about a murder. It turns out that the crime he thinks has taken place is a robbery. And those were the types of questions he was answering on the tape. Also, he insists that Aline is alive. He saw Aline just yesterday. So again, something isn't right. Klein asks where Aline's room is, and of course, it is not where Klein was shown, the, this recreated crime scene. And so now Klein tries to go to Aline's room, or at least he you know, he goes to the room that Andreessen has told him is Aline's, whether or not it actually is. But the guard there greets him with some, some pretty quick and effective violence. So now it's back to Borcher, who tells Klein that Andreessen is lying to him, because. Klein's still only a four. And Borcher insists that Aline is really dead. He also suggests that maybe if Klein lost a few more toes, Andreessen might tell him the truth. Now Klein just really wants to get out of here now. It's clear that Borcher is not playing fair. So that night, Klein takes a look around the compound to see about getting out. Uh, and in fact, he, he just tries to leave via the gate, but the guard there won't let him. When Klein asks about getting over the wall, the guard says that even if he did, they would find him eventually. So there's, there's just no way out. Now Klein has not had enough of who's on first conversations for one day, so now he goes to the bar, which is also the strip club, and he finds Goose and Ramsey there, already a little drunk. And this is all comedic, but I am just going to get straight to the, the heart of the matter here. Klein explains that Aline is dead, and that is why he's been brought here but Ramsey says that that's not what he's here to investigate. He's here to figure out who has been stealing sexy pictures of amputees and selling them for personal profit rather than for the profit of the organization. But Klein's mention of Aline's death
0: has Ramsey and Goose, and also the bartender, spinning. I love that Evanson has added this old chestnut of the black market smut business <laughs> into this story. <laughs> I mean, it's so classic in hard boiled fiction. You know, it's another reason uh, that it's another thing we should consider when thinking about why Evanson has brought these uh, amputated women um, into the narrative. Everything just fits so nicely together in this story. It's really, it's really awesome. On the matter of Swifty and satire here, uh, there's a moment where Andreessen lightly scolds Klein for hiding his toe amputations, as if Klein, so, says Andreessen, is hiding his light under a bushel. Um, this phrase comes from another of Jesus's uh, parables. Since the epigram is in Matthew, I'll stick with the Matthew version of this verse. Uh, so this is also found in Matthew 5, but verse 15, Jesus says this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a stand, and it gives light to all that in the house. One way to look at Andreessen saying this then is that the cult thinks that their mutilations or amputations can serve as a call to others who wish to express their faith in this way, to people who may not know that this is a way to express faith, also fascinating is the that this parable is caught up with city on a hill language. This type of language is deeply caught up in American political speeches. It's a big part of American exceptionalism as an ideology. Um, as you can trace it through uh, political speeches from the founding of American, the founding of America, on through Reagan. So I think that this verse is here, and maybe playing a few different. Roles uh, in the context of the story. We finally, in the section, get this conversation about Aline at the bar. And Glenn, you're right. It is hilarious. And it essentially boils down to a kind of position towards theology as well. Aline, like God, is either dead or he isn't, right? He either exists or it doesn't. And, you know, these boys are just trying to crack that case. And that's a tough one to crack. Yeah, I mean, this scene is is hilarious. There's no way that you and I were going to do it any
1: justice, Uh, certainly not Paraphrasing it, and I think even if we tried to act it out, uh, just just wasn't going to work very well. I mean, we've done some <laughs> Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and that's probably about the extent of what we'll ever be able to, uh, to to pull off. But I I do recommend,
0: strangely, reading this body horror story for the humor. It's really funny, and and you know Rosencrantz and Guildenstern might be the original gentleman goon. So you know who knows? Uh, long literary tradition behind these types of characters. Yeah, actually, I think that's totally spot on. And uh,
1: you should probably go write that up as an academic article, actually. (laughs) All right. Well, we're back with Borcher again, who is annoyed that Klein has been spreading rumors. Borcher insists that the smuggling stuff was a cover story and that Aline really, truly, super for real, is dead. And he wishes that Klein would just take that on faith. But if he won't, he can go see for himself. Borsher won't use any of his authority to help him, but he gives Klein an unloaded gun and tells him that he can use it to threaten the guard to let him into Aline's room to see for himself. Klein does this and uh, discovers that Aline is there, but he's not dead. He's very much alive, though Aline has been severely amputated. He has no limbs, no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue. Aline tries to tell Klein something, but Klein can't understand him. And then in the next scene, Klein is back at Borcher's room, and Borcher admits that Aline is alive and that he's lied to Klein, but he does offer to explain it all to him for a price, but Klein does not want to trade a limb for information, and so he just returns to his room. He spends the night trying to figure out what is going on, and when he finally figures it out, he realizes that he is in some serious business danger, and that is where this uh, penultimate
0: chapter breaks. I got to tell you, I did not figure out the resolution to the story by the time that Klein did. So I'm glad he was on the case and not me. We'll talk about that you know, when we get to the final chapter in a few moments. I want to return to the start of the chapter, though, where Borchere is once again trying to get Klein to have faith. Borchere says, thou wouldst doubt, as Jesus said. And as for the doubting, there's nothing but what you can touch. So, first of all, Jesus never said anything like this anywhere. (laughs) He didn't say, thou wouldst thou. The closest I could find this phrase to having anything to do with Christianity was in an old translation uh, of some Augustine work. Um, But yeah, I don't know. I don't know where this would come from. And so I wonder what Evanson is, is playing with here. Jesus especially would not have said this in relation to um, doubting and touching or material reality, uh, because that refers to an event that takes place between Jesus and his disciple Thomas after his resurrection, after Christ's resurrection. So it you know for Jesus to say this would be kind of, uh, I don't know, smarmy sounding on, on some level. But second of all, Borscher has done nothing but deceive Klein. And then on top of it, he throws off some fake Jesus quotes trying to gain his trust. And then uh, you know, Borchir says, okay, it masks off. Go and see the real empirical reality, which of course then proves that Klein is right. So Borscher, apart from being the antagonist of the story, is actually really a villain who is, seems to be trying to gain control of the cult. Even in the way that Borchere tells Klein that what Klein really needs is the truth or what Klein should desire more is the truth than having limbs, it's it's awful, right? It's, it's very manipulative. And of course, Evanson has brought us along as readers, and he puts us in the position of hoping that Klein does want the truth more than he wants his limbs, because that's how we'll get answers as consumers of this story being in Klein's POV. This is a very strong narrative move it's on the level of hitchcock getting the audience to briefly empathize with norman bates as the car stops sinking you know briefly into the swamp in psycho if he gets caught how are we going to get the story you know and and so this chapter is an exercise in asking the reader what they're willing to have their protagonist experience in order to get the mystery resolved As you said, Brandon, Borchere really has unmasked
1: himself as essentially the villain of this story. And so here in this last chapter, the end of the story, we are going to get a villainous monologue from him, uh, finally. And this happens when Klein returns to Borchere's room in the middle of the night because Klein has figured out that Borchere plans to kill Aline and then pin the murder on him, on on Klein. And Klein is right— except that uh, Borsher has already killed Aline. And the reason for it is that, as you suggested, Brandon, he and Aline had a disagreement on certain questions of belief. And the only way for this brotherhood to continue without undergoing a schism was for one of them to die in such a way that the other would not be blamed for it. And in Borsher's understanding, Aline was also trying to find a way to kill him. It's just that Borsher beat him to it. won. Well, the question at this point is what to do with Klein. Borchier decides that today is a day for mercy rather than a day for justice, and so he's going to let Klein leave. Which is to say, he's going to let Klein leave this room. It's still up to Klein to get out of this compound on his own. But even before he's going to let Klein go, he wants Klein to cut off his own arm. And Klein doesn't want to do this, but Borchier has a gun, and so Klein finds himself in a position in which he just doesn't have much choice. And the story ends with Klein turning on the burner to cauterize the wound he's going to make, and then picking up the cleaver. And he runs through the possibilities. The best case scenario is that he makes a clean cut, cauterizes the wound, and escapes the compound somehow. But it's more likely that he'll be caught by the guards, and maybe even more likely that he's just going to botch this amputation and and bleed to death. Maybe he'll make a clean cut, but Borchere won't really let him go. In any case, the odds are not good for Klein. And the last line of the story is this. He raises the cleaver high. His whole life is waiting for him. He only needs to bring the cleaver down for it to
0: begin. Right. So we have this image recur once again for the third or fourth time in the novella, but most significantly during that early Dream that I that I mentioned. Klein is the one with the cleaver. He is wielding it against himself. We learn that Klein had had some sort of relationship with the gentleman with the cleaver. They may have been friends. As Klein was in this role as infiltrator, they may have even been the same person. Certainly, this uh, novella raises that possibility through some of its language and imagery. And Klein then is in the throes of a complete mental breakdown at this moment. These are just some of the many possibilities that we can discuss when we get to the discussion episode, uh, You know, which we hope you'll join us for. If you enjoyed this recap episode, I'll just end by saying this. Uh, this is one hell of a story, and I think we're going to get a lot out of discussing it. But that is going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buda.
1: And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. I want to say thanks again to the Patreon supporter who commissioned this episode. We have loved this story. We're very much looking forward to doing the discussion episode as well, which will be out in just a few days. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.